Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this week's episode, Roger is joined by two congressmen, Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat from Colorado, and Representative Mike Waltz of Florida. Both congressmen have military backgrounds and are involved with the Four Country Caucus, a congressional group that provides principled military veterans a platform to work in a nonpartisan way and create a more productive government. Representative Crow was an Army Ranger who served in Iraq and Afghanistan before becoming an attorney in Denver, and Congressman Mike Waltz is the only former Green Beret to ever be elected to Congress. Before joining the House, he served as a White House and Pentagon policy advisor and started a small business. Roger and the Congressman discussed the four-country caucus, the need for more veterans in government, and ways we can restore Americans' trust in Congress. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Congressman Crone Waltz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, this is a fun one for here for us at the uh, Reaganism uh, podcast. We have two fantastic guests together. Uh, as we've noted, one a Republican, one a Democrat, uh, both veterans, uh, both Rangers, one Green Beret, and both curiously <laughs> representing the sixth district of their respective states. Um, so that brings you all together here. I may have been the first to point that out. Uh, is there something unique about six, Congressman Crower Waltz? Yeah, I don't well, know. You know um, and, <laughs> go ahead, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, well, you know, uh, usually the six uh, is the moniker for a commander in the military, right? On radio <laughs> call signs. So I don't know. Maybe maybe that was uh, preordained or something with our districts. I don't know. What that do you nice, think, Mike? Creative. Congressman Waltz, you got my back. You got his. Yeah, back. no, I'll, I think it has something to do with space because we're both um, we're both space nerds. You know, people ask me all the time where I'm going with all this, and I have a very selfish goal of being the first Green Beret in space. So uh, that was awesome. I have to admit, you gave aren't all Green more. Berets in space? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, Mike, I'm parachute, the parachute out of uh, <laughs> parachute out of the space station is is the ultimate goal. <laughs> All right, this is this is already going to be a sporty conversation here. Did a lot with the number six. Let's go to something else. Um, <laughs> the two of you, uh, in addition to enjoying uh, being together, you like jumping out of planes together. You did so in 2019 uh, in honor of the 75th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Normandy. Tell me what's more difficult, Congressman Crow, jumping out of a plane or or, or more risky or doing bipartisan work in the U.S. Congress. <laughs> Roger, I think it depends on the day. Uh, that, was, that, was a, that, was a, uh, that was a great time actually with Mike. Uh, and uh, not only was it, was it fun to do and a uh, great thing to do you know, with my fellow paratrooper, but um, uh, what, a, what a, way, a great way to honor uh, you know, our, our forefathers uh, in the paratrooper corps to do this. But you know, it, was, it was interesting for me but that um, I was stuck in a chalk. I was in a plane 
with a bunch of French paratroopers. And I was literally the only person that spoke English in that plane. And they were trying to be really nice to me by putting me first to be the first jumper. <laughs> and I couldn't understand anything anybody was saying. And I was like, I don't know whether they're gonna say jump or don't jump. I don't know what, how, how to say that in French. So I, was, I had to like put somebody else in front uh, and I was just I'm gonna follow this guy. But it turns out that um, French uh, military paratroop procedures are about 80% the same as American procedures. And the 20% that's different don't really matter. So it kind of worked out. Did you know that going into it? Or is that because you happened to, you know, land safely that you discovered that 20% didn't quite matter so much? <laughs> it was only it was only after I landed safely. <laughs> Congressman Waltz, where were you? Where was your fellow taking care of your fellow paratrooper? How'd he get stuck in the French flight? You know, we ended up we somehow we ended up on different planes, but it was Roger, it was just an incredible day. I ended up on the original aircraft that led the invasion fleet June 5th, uh, 1944. Uh, and, and here we were 75 years later, same bird. The parachutes were new, uh, but the, but the um, same aircraft. I have to tell you two things that really struck me was one, we, uh, uh, the day before a 92 year old paratrooper uh, had also jumped. He was of course tied to a, a, a retired Green Beret, but he was hooting and hollering all the way down to the ground um, and to see him, you know, it was the first time he had jumped in 75 years uh, to see him do it again and to honor him was just incredible. But the other thing, you know, for, for all of your listeners, if you haven't been to Normandy, you have to add that to your bucket list. The reaction of the French people uh, was just jaw dropping. I mean, hand painted banners. We love you, America. Thank you for our freedom. Welcome to our liberators little kids running around in 82nd Airborne and American flag t-shirts. I thought they were the kids of some of the reenactors that were there. They were French kids. I mean, you would have thought D-Day had happened last week. Uh, and, and to see that and experience that and to walk in the shoes of, uh, of our forefathers that fought and died for, free, you know, for other people's freedom uh, was, really, was really special. And to do it with a, with a Democrat, do it in a bipartisan way, um, uh, was just an awesome day. That, that gives me chills. I mean, it's amazing that uh, continued to be embraced by the French um, in that in that way. Next generations, obviously, um, grandparents at best who, who were there at the time. That's that's unreal. Uh, we talked about your service um, in the military. Of course, uh, both of you are the 9/11 generation in terms of service in the military. Um, accomplished, distinguished careers, Rangers. That's an institution that has a lot of support in this country, that is the military. Both of you have taken the choice now. You're both in the midst of your second term in Congress. Uh, you've entered an institution that, let's just say, does not have the same respect or trust amongst Americans. Uh, Congress is generally fighting to see if they can get, you know, 10% support or trust as an institution as opposed to military that, depending on your poll, is well above 50%. Uh, Congressman Waltz, what is that like to go from one respected institution where people see you in uniform or know your service and thank you to know yeah. as though you're an elected official and uh, immediately they're skeptical and they frown? Is that, how do you manage that and, and, and give me your take on it? Yeah, well, you know, Roger, our government's made of people. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons that I decided to run, I had a great business and that you know, was private equity backed and growing and 
uh, uh, you know, on boards and a lot of other great things going on. But a statistic kept striking me that uh, we were at a record low in terms of veterans in Congress. In the late 1970s, it hovered around 75%. Today, it's around 18%. Uh, and I'm convinced that that record low number of veterans explains a lot of our dysfunction uh, in Congress. And why does that matter so much? It's not so much every issue. I mean, Jason and I disagree on all kinds of issues, Second Amendment, uh, you know, right to life, you name it. We can walk down on things we disagree on. But we're also willing, if we were willing to die for this country, uh, literally, then we're willing to come together. Uh, and find common ground and how we can move the country forward. So it's that ethos that we bring of mission, country, getting the job done. Because we know, especially Jason and I have been in active combat, that the enemy's bullets could care less about black, white, or brown. They, don't, they certainly don't care about you know, uh, Republican or Democrat. They only care that we're Americans. And so I think that perspective. Uh, and then the final thing is that we've served overseas there are people on all uh, corners of this country that just think America is, is, is not a good country. It's, it's declining. Uh, it's fundamentally flawed. There's systemic problems. I think Jason and I, from Africa to the Middle East to South Asia, have seen where that really exists and, that, and ultimately appreciate that this country uh, can always be better, should always improve, but is an exceptional nation, uh, one worth dying for and certainly one worth suffering in Washington, D.C. for Congressman Crow, I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, Congressman Waltz uh, served in Afghanistan, elsewhere around the Middle East and Africa. Uh, you served both in Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan. Uh, do you agree with Congressman Waltz in terms of more veterans in the Congress would lead to perhaps the Congress breaking that 10% barrier and getting support <laughs> the, United, uh, the people of the United States, you know, up to 20%? I mean, that nexus, do you think that, that really will have a positive impact on, on the institution? Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And, and uh, you know, Mike said it really eloquently in that, you know, we disagree on all sorts of issues, but we draw on that background because, you know, we, we remember, we hearken back to that time in Iraq and Afghanistan with our platoons, with our units, where, um, you know, there were all sorts of political beliefs, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, races, religions, cultures that were in our group, but we had to focus on the mission. You had to come together uh, as Americans and either live or die as Americans, uh, and we did, and we got that job done. And there's a huge lesson in there and that that is progress and unity is a choice, right? You can maybe disagree 90% of the time. Uh, and, oh, my, uh, <laughs> my, my motion detector is going off. I'm trying to reduce my carbon footprint in my office. So, uh, but you, you, can, you, know, you can disagree maybe 80%, 90% of the time and spend all your time focusing on that or you can make the choice to find the areas where you agree uh, and focus on those areas and make progress there, right? That's an actual conscious choice. And that's the choice that we've made uh, to try to figure out where we overlap and where we can try to make that progress. And, you know, there's, a, there's that, you know, age old saying that uh, politics should end at the water's edge and it applies to foreign policy and foreign affairs and it applies to national security. And that's the spirit that I think uh, Mike and I are trying to tap into that there are definitely things that we agree on that are in the best interest of our country and our national security and our defense and uh, uh, serving our men and women in uniform. Uh, and, and that's where we work. 
So, you know, we're going to talk about some national security, national defense policy. Both of you uh, are in the Armed Services Committee and the House of Representatives, which has a rich legacy of actually bipartisan uh, cooperation legislation. Uh, annually, they passed the Defense Authorization Bill. But Congressman Crow, I want to drill down a little bit. Uh, as we mentioned, you're in the 6th District of uh, Colorado. On your bookshelf, it's a profile of you uh, wrote about how you have dog tags and a piece of sharpnail that was lodged into the center of your body armor in Afghanistan. And that sits uh, in DC, uh, at least according to the profile. I'm curious about your service uh, and how it's viewed in your district in Colorado. Uh, and to what extent uh, that is something that you feel the constituents understand. Certainly I imagine they respect and it's, uh, I know there's a kind of military uh, uh, community there. Um, but with Afghanistan and Iraq, by many Americans viewed uh, as a failure, uh, perhaps not a majority, but plurality, how does this all kind of fit together? How do you speak to Americans about the service and sacrifice and the mission uh, that you fought to advance in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, Roger. I mean, my dog tags are sitting right behind me on that shelf. Uh, I, I still still keep them there. I look at them all the time. That, that piece of shrapnel, it was from a Carl Gustav round, actually, that uh, was fired off uh, in just outside of um, Kabul in Afghanistan and hit an armored vehicle and then came back and actually got lodged. It was smoldering in my in my body armor. And I still keep that as a you know kind of reminder of the service and how close things uh, can get sometimes. But, you know, it starts with the kind of how I view the job, right? Uh, and, and not necessarily the perception of my constituents or my district, but how I view it. My military career started as a private. Uh, you know, I ended uh, about 10 years later after originally enlisting as a private in the, in the National Guard, frankly, to help pay for school. You know, I, I was raised in a working class family. I did really well in school and my family couldn't afford to send me to school. So between actually working in construction uh, and enlisting in the National Guard, I was actually able to pay for, for uh, school. I mean, I would work 20 hours uh, on the construction site, uh, take, you know, take my boots off. Uh, you know, and, and, and head to classes in the evenings uh, in the National Guard on the weekend. And then, you know, what I discovered is I loved that service. I, lo I actually loved putting that uniform on, wearing the flag on my shoulder, standing there with, with people that I had a common purpose with. Uh, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do. So I actually transitioned into ROTC and then became an officer and went active duty. And I, but I always think about Private Crow. Right. Every day when I'm sitting in the Armed Services Committee hearing and we're talking policy and maybe the Secretary of Defense is in front of us, I'm thinking about Private Crow and, and the consequences that make it downrange, right? Because somewhere, somewhere in the world, the decisions that are made in these buildings on this hill uh, are impacting, uh, you know, uh, some other Private Crow somewhere. Uh, and and I, I try to always remember that. Uh, and, um, and then I just speak bluntly, too. You know, there's this long tradition of just frank talk and blunt talk uh, and just telling it like it is because in the military you have to right like there's just no time for for, polit for political talk um, and I think that that has resonated in my community. Congressman Waltz um, you are the only Green Beret uh, to serve in the Congress uh, that of course to those unfamiliar is one of the most elite military units. Um, my recollection from uh, I'm working on, on these issues is that particularly at the height of Iraq and Afghanistan, deployments were incessant. I mean, not just one, two, three, but we're talking about people knocking on 10 or, or a dozen 
yeah. Talk a little bit about the Green Beret in Congress. Uh, I know you, you joke often about being the only one, but but the perspective, unique perspective, perhaps it brings to the conversations that uh, Congressman Crow was just talking about. He was referencing it from the perspective of a private. Uh, you as as a Green Beret. Well, you know, it, it brings a couple of different perspectives. One is that I've done a lot of my time in the reserves. Uh, a lot of folks don't realize both the Navy SEALs and Green Berets have reserve units. It meant I had to have a day job. And my day job for many years was actually in the Pentagon uh, under Rumsfeld and Gates, uh, charged with Afghanistan policy, and then over in the Bush White House. So I had to be one of the only uh, idiots in Washington that actually had to go do the strategy that I was recommending. Uh, back in Washington, you better make sure it's right. But uh, and that, you know, someone found Bookworthy. I, I put out a book called Warrior Diplomat that really looks at policy from all of those different perspectives, from the White House, from the Pentagon, out on the ground. And then the fun part would be coming back, taking off the uniform, putting on a coat and tie again, going back into the White House, uh, in the Bush White House and saying, hey, boss, uh, I was in the room when you said this is what we we're going to do. I just spent a year uh, out on the ground and, and that's not what we were doing and looking at that disconnect between policy and intent from the policymakers. And then as Jason was saying, what's the private out on the ground uh, actually doing and, and what are the issues in terms of ends, ways and means, strategy and resources uh, for, for, that, um, for that execution. But I think all of those things that combined within having built a business uh, from scratch, three of us in an attic. And then when I stepped down, you know, we were at 400 employees uh, and, and growing. Uh, all of those things led me to believe I could be effective here uh, and, and bring those uh, perspectives to bear. Uh, you know, again, I said, we're, 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 our government's made of people uh, and it's what perspectives that we bring, what experiences that we bring, I think is what makes us effective uh, and our reasons for being here. I don't want to be in Washington and in Congress forever by any means. Uh, I want to work with uh, whether it's across the aisle, in my caucus, on committee, get things done, be effective, and then and then move on and clear the way for for others to come and, and make their mark. I want to move in a moment to the four country caucus, the caucus that both of you are involved in, in uh, uh, Congressman Waltz, you serve as the, as the vice chair. But one thing I was thinking about with all the significant experience both you have in, in, in military, particularly operational matters, having served uh, in combat zones, you know, uh, you serve in the People's House. Uh, and the Armed Services Committee in particular is a pretty large committee, people with yep. lots of experience, people with, let's say, less experience. How, uh, Congressman Kerr, how important is it and uh, is, has been eye-opening for you to talk to some of your colleagues, be it Republican or Democratic, doesn't matter, uh, on these issues of national defense, uh, are you surprised with the level of sophistication or surprised with how much they don't know about the things that they're voting on and that matter a lot to the men and women in uniform? Yeah, you know, for, first off, Roger, I, mean, I love serving in the people's house. You know, some people say it's just more ruckus. It's, you know, <laughs> that it's, it's a lot more fun, I think. Than the <laughs> but I, ruckus I is true. It, it, yeah. ruckus. <laughs> it is more ruckus. Ruckus, but I think we, I think we have a heck of a lot more fun in the in the people's house uh, than otherwise. So, um, but you know, here here's the, the way I look at that. Um, 
you look at the, the folks that serve on the armed services committee, and, and there's a lot of veterans, a lot of military background, but there's a lot of folks who don't, right? Uh, and those people that, that there's a lot of folks that serve that uh, serve that have uh, that are civilians and never served in the military, but they represent military bases uh, and such. But we have civilian control of the military in our country, and I don't think I realized exactly how special that was and how, and what it meant until I served in areas that didn't have that. You look at countries where you know, the military runs the show uh, or the military is independent or has its own, you know, kind of power center uh, and um, how, how, um, how negative that is, right? And how, how special, but also how delicate our system is. Unpack it, so, negative, negative because it's undemocratic that you have these juntas. I mean, what are you, what are you referring right. to specifically? Yeah, exactly. You, you have these the military juntas, you have coups all the time that are constantly pushing back and forth. You have, you have the military that's pushing its own agenda uh, uh, instead of you know, the, the civilian elected leaders that are pushing the agenda in, in many of these places overseas. So we've seen that, both Mike and I have seen that uh, kind of play out in other parts of the world. And I think we appreciate in a pretty deep way what it is we have here. Uh, so uh, I've never thought that military service or being a veteran is a prerequisite for weighing in uh, and, and helping uh, be a civilian leader of the military. In fact, um, we need to have that balance, right? We need, need to have folks who haven't served uh, that will ask the tough questions that will, uh, you know, sometimes they look at things differently and they don't make assumptions that, that I make. Uh, and, and that's actually a really great aspect of our system that, uh, you know, the military is there to serve the people in the interests of the people. Uh, and, and so the people's reps, whether they're veterans or not, uh, should be asking those questions and have that seat at the table. So I embrace that. Great points. Congressman Waltz, I mean, just to follow up on what Congressman Crow just said, you've had a chance, you both have had a chance to vote on this issue of late. Um, yeah. Of course, President Biden nominated uh, now Secretary of Defense Austin required a waiver because the law, which is still the law, prohibits somebody uh, who has not been out of military service uh, for more than seven years from serving as a Secretary of Defense in the senior civilian role. Um, to get a little policy wonkish here for a second, but I know you, you thought deeply about this, are you okay with military, particularly general officers, retired general officers that haven't had that distance from their time in uniform uh, and, and, and time in civilian life to serve as the Secretary of Defense in light of some of those considerations that Congressman Crow just articulated. Yeah, so so a couple of points there. One, I just want to add to Jason's comments and, and to your question on kind of how a Green Beret helps with a, a committee of 60, being a Green Beret helps with, you know, a committee of 60 plus just on armed services and, you know, 435. And that's just to get something through the House. Then you have to deal with the Senate. And, you know, one of the reasons that we're so unique is we believe in by, with, and through, right? I don't know if Jason would agree or disagree, but the Rangers and the SEALs are the best in the world at finding a bad guy in the middle of nowhere and taking them out. What we do that's differently, we have to learn local cultures, local languages, and you embed six of us into a village or a valley and we'll train 10,000. Uh, so we, we don't necessarily lead through authority, we lead through influence uh, to get folks to kind of bought in to our uh, agenda, which is often ob obviously the United States' agenda. Um, and I think that has served me well here, especially being in the minority, frankly. Uh, you know, I have to get the other side bought in um, uh, to our piece. On, on 
civilian control of the military on the Austin vote in particular, I voted against it. Uh, that is nothing personal uh, per se to General Austin and his uh, incredible service, but it was for a few reasons. Number one, Jason articulated why civilian control is so important, but it's the perspectives that they bring, not just in oversight from Congress, but also in civilian oversight within the Pentagon. Uh, and frankly, you know, General Austin has served for almost 40 years, fantastic service, but we don't need another general in the Pentagon. We don't need another chairman of uh, the Joint Chiefs. Uh, we need civilian control, someone that brings legal or business or civil society or, you know, those different perspectives that Jason mentioned to ask those tough questions. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I just don't see that in, in General Austin's background. I didn't see that in General Mattis's background. I wasn't around, I wasn't in Congress for that vote, uh, but I, I, I think I would have had the same concerns then. The other piece is I think, you know, the law is right. The law was in place for a reason. Uh, we haven't voted on a waiver and approved a waiver in over 50 years, General Marshall, and now we've done two just in the last few. Uh, so World War II to now, uh, uh, I, I, I con I'm concerned about the slippery slope and I'm concerned about the message that it sends to our current three four-star generals that could be looking at potential positions uh, and could you know, uh, inadvertently begin politicizing their own decisions. So I have real concerns about it uh, and, and voted against it for those reasons. Congressman Crew, I mean, you know, what, yep. what I hear Congressman Walt saying is that it potentially, you know, the exception to the rule becomes the rule. Um, give me your take on it. Uh, you could talk about uh, Secretary Austin, but more broadly about the law and whether it, it, it will continue to matter. Yeah, so this is an area I think where, where reasonable minds can differ. You know, I, uh, for, you know, I think we come at this from the same place, right? Civilian control of the military, making sure that we keep those checks and balances. Uh, in my view, you know, the... Uh, the, the waiver process or the prohibition was put into place, you know, the original prohibition was put into place shortly after World War II because there was concern uh, about a large number of, of military officers and commanders coming back and kind of controlling uh, or, or disrupting that civilian control of the military. Uh, so that was the, the original intent of it. We kept, we kept uh, it on the books and that, that time frame has changed once uh, during the, the period. And for me, it's less than about you know, an arbitrary time period because you know, we, in, in almost every other respect, do put a premium on military service, right? We've had a lot of presidents uh, who uh, are, are veterans. We, we have a lot of members of Congress who are veterans, although we should have more, uh, and people do value that. So it's less about the arbitrary time frame than it is, I think, about that, what's in the heart and the mind of the nominee. Uh, and so the way I approach this was this. Um, that you start with the, the, um, the presumption uh, you, that you are not going to vote for the waiver. That's how I started. That I was not going to vote for the waiver because you respect the, the intent of the waiver and why it's on the books. Uh, and then you go through that process. There's actually a process that's outlined for you know, the, the waiver that we went through in Mattis, although I wasn't in Congress either at the time. You go through that to determine whether this candidate uh, is the right candidate for, for the moment. Uh, for the moment that we're in as a country, for the needs of the military. And for me, that was about getting into the, the heart and mind of Secretary Austin. And I became very convinced during that process that uh, he is a uniquely qualified leader, that he has had the experience, the life experience, and he has the mentality to do what's necessary to lead our military 
uh, during a very difficult time, particularly of civil military relations right now and having to rebuild public confidence. And I think he has shown that to be true uh, in the months since uh, that process that you know, he is doing, uh, I think a very nice job. Uh, and uh, I'm not, never gonna be a rubber stamp for sure. That's not my role uh, as a member of the Armed Services Committee. I'm gonna continue to hold him accountable and conduct oversight. Uh, but uh, I did support the waiver for, for those reasons. Uh, just to follow up on uh, one more question on that, Congressman Waltz is saying this is a, becoming a trend, you know, bipartisan. President Trump did this, now President Biden. Uh, do you agree with that, Congressman Crow? Do you think we'll see more of this going forward? There's that light again. I tell you, the There's the light again. It's, I got to reset <laughs> the time on this. I'm serving so much energy. It's unbelievable in this office. It's, uh, um, do, do you think we'll have more, more military people leading uh, the Department of Defense? I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't take it lightly that uh, we've had two within a couple of year period. And, and then before that, it had been decades. Uh, and that was certainly something I considered. I, I don't think two is a trend, certainly. Um, and, I, and I don't think we should make a habit of that either. Uh, I think uh, I, I think it's important we take a hard look at it. And that's why, you know, I went through the motions. I didn't just say, yes, I'm going to do the waiver just because, you know, it was uh, a, a, um, a president from my party that wanted the waiver. That's not the way I approached it. You know, I have an independent obligation to conduct my due diligence and make sure this was the right candidate and a waiver was appropriate. And I would do the same if a Republican president asks for one again. I would go through the exact same process. Interesting. Uh, um, you know, another VMI grad, Congressman Walton, was the last point we'll make on this. Uh, um, General Marshall, you know, he had he, he had some quote in the um, that earlier in his career. He thought the Department of Defense at the time, you know, the War Department needed a military person to lead. And then after all those years of service, uh, reflecting on it, uh, Secretary of State in particular, he said that that was absolutely not the way to go. Uh, so kind of interesting, the first example, the exception felt the exception shouldn't apply. Let's move to the country caucus, uh, four country caucus, excuse me. Congressman Waltz, you serve as the vice chair of this unique uh, caucus. Tell us what a caucus is. It's kind of a weird word for people not inside uh, the Congress. And uh, as you know, there are lots of caucuses, caucus I. <laughs> uh, um, why is this one unique? Why does it matter? Yeah, well, just minor update that I, I, I'm no longer vice chair. We have a, a healthy, what I think a healthy rule in the caucus to change out the leadership. I just extended uh, every, your term. I don't know if you yeah, got Yeah, every, every Cong Congress. But to your point, there are all kinds of caucuses. I mean, literally, there's a Road Builders Caucus. I'm, I am now the vice chair of the India, U.S.-India Caucus, uh, because I believe that relationship vis-a-vis -vis China is critical uh, for uh, the 21st century. There, it, it's basically a group of like-minded members that are focused on either an issue or a part of the world um, uh, and 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 want to come together, particularly in an era where we don't come together nearly as much as frankly, I think we should uh, to focus on that issue or that, or that region. Uh, in this case, this was really focused around uh, our service, uh, but focused around bipartisanship and getting things done, uh, accomplishing you know, some, some items on our le legislative agenda uh, and really having a forum where, again, even though we, we may disagree on all kinds of things, we can, we can find common ground. You know, to my point earlier on, and to both of our points, on kind of that commonality of service and how that could change Congress in Washington, I think it could change America. 
uh, as well for the better. You know, I think a lot of the issues that we are seeing now uh, are a result of us moving a couple of generations away from the draft. Uh, in the draft era, uh, you know, everyone was forced to come together and you learn leadership and followership and discipline and teamwork. Uh, you did it, importantly, with people who didn't look like you, uh, black, white, brown, Christian, Jewish. And if you couldn't get over your ingrained biases and differences, you had a drill sergeant's boot in your rear uh, to, to help you get there. Um, I'm not uh, saying necessarily we can or should return to a draft, but I do think we can incentivize national service. I mean, the Israelis do it, population of 8 million, our population of 350 million. You don't have to wear a uniform, national parks, inner city tutoring, uh, you know, um, volunteerism and service, I think, uh, is something we can get back to. And it's legislation that the four country caucuses is behind and is pushing. I want to get to that in just a second. I know you have the National Service GI Bill, which is what, what you're referencing. Um, right. How many members are there as, uh, in this caucus? Uh, I believe we're approaching 30 now. I mean, we just had additional members add uh, that that came in. Um, Jason, I don't know if you have the exact number, but it is roughly even in uh, both Republicans and Democrats uh, yeah. that, that both come in. I'm asking Congressman yeah, Cody because that, that, you know, let's just call it 30 uh, and this even distribution, you know, a few more, a few less, given the margins, uh, in the Congress. I mean, that by that is it's a it's really narrow Democratic majority in the House of Representatives right now. To me, it would seem that a, a caucus like the Four Country Caucus uh, could be very impactful. I mean, I, I'm sure the Rome Builders Caucus think of themselves as also being impactful, but <laughs> 30 veterans, right, who have the ethos that you've both described, yeah. really shape uh, a chamber in the House of Representatives because on any given vote, if they lock arms, uh, they could determine the outcome. Congressman Crow, do you agree with that? Or, or is that not the intent of the caucus? I, I note that in your in the mission statement, you've talked to nonpartisanship as opposed to bipartisanship. Is this thing kind of separate and apart from voting or could it be impactful in the actual voting chamber? Yeah, Roger, I think it, I mean, it definitely can be impactful. And in fact, that's the, the purpose, right, is to have an impact, not just to you know, get together and, and have beers and have a good time, right? Like we're, we're doing this to have an impact. And there, cause there are, you know, as Mike said, there are, I think over 400 caucuses. Like there's four different types of concrete caucuses. Like there's a, there's a caucus for each different type of concrete. Like there's a lot of caucuses. So, um, uh, but this one is really special in that, um, number one, it's one of what we call the Noah's Ark caucuses, right? There's a couple of the Noah's Ark caucuses where you have to join with somebody from the other side of the aisle. You know, you're, you're going to. For those not familiar with scripture, you go into the ark and yeah, by twos. It's two. Yes. You go two by two. You got to yes. keep the keep the balance. Uh, so we're we're one of those caucuses. Um, and um, the other thing that's actually unique about four countries is that we're not an ideological caucus, right? We're not a group of moderates, right? I mean, there are caucuses like the Four Problem Solvers Caucus that are people that are kind of like ideologically moderate uh, that come together to try to influence legislation or the path. Of, of, of the house. That's not what four country does. We actually come from the entire spectrum I mean, from, from very progressive folks to very conservative folks. So we're not bound by ideology. We're bound by our service and our mentality and our approach to politics. But doesn't, that, that, weaken, that's really, but doesn't that weaken your ability to actually get something done? Because, you know, if you're not bound ideologically and you're, you're, you're you know, bound by this, you know, by the service, what does that actually mean for 
for a legislative body, Congressman Crow? What, what well, you... it actually strengthens our ability to, to accomplish what it is we're trying to accomplish, because we have two goals, right? The first goal is to advance legislation that's important, and we do a lot of veterans legislation, a lot of national security legislation that we have common uh, tie over. And if we can bring together, you know, the bookends of the ideological spectrum around issues, that's extremely powerful, because then we can bring everybody else along with us, right? But the other thing is to change the culture. And this, I think, yep. is the more important element. Because um, Mike and I might disagree on something, but I'm not going to malign Mike. I'm not going to attack him. I'm not going to question his loyalty, his patriotism, his love for country, because I know he served. He raised his right hand and took that oath just like I did. And he went overseas and risked his life just like I did. So I'm not going to question that. We're going to have, we'll have a debate about policy. Uh, and that's a, a, such an important distinction for our country right now, that we need to get back to be able to have tough debates on tough issues and talk about the facts, talk about uh, the challenges without maligning each other personally or undermining each other. I want to hit on that culture point, Congressman Waltz, because one of the things that's notable about uh, this caucus, uh, in addition to the fact that it's veterans and there's 30 and you have to go in by twos, uh, a Democrat or Republican, is that you require members to take an oath of civility. That's <laughs> unusual. What is an oath of civility? What does that actually, what do you say? What does that, what does that mean? Well, I think Jason, Jason explained it well, but we also, and this is, you know, every, everything has a, an overlay of, polit of, of politics in Washington. I mean, that's the, that's the business we're in is that we don't go after each other politically. Uh, and I, I, I don't know of another caucus that does that. Uh, and that is that's critical so that we can really you know, sit down, have candid conversations, know that they're not going to be used uh, against us and and find a path forward uh, and know that politically that's not going to you know, that that's not going to come back to bite us. I think that's incredible. That's that's political. But I just can't emphasize enough in an era in not just Washington, but in the country where bad news sells the most, where you know, the most outrageous thing gets the most clicks uh, and gets you the most notoriety and an error in our politics, uh, we're, tr we're trying to remove that or we're trying to move away from that in, the, in, in, um, uh, in this caucus. And look, I mean, let's talk about some of the white elephants in the rooms, I mean, whether it's January 6th or, or impeachment, Jason was an impeachment manager I mean, you know, it is, um, you know, we are working through some of the most divisive, difficult issues in this country. Uh, and yet uh, we'll, we'll hash it out, we'll disagree. Jason, I've had some one-on-one -on -one conversations as I've had with other members, but to your point on ideology, this is it's just a critical point. We have so many elements of our political body now, and frankly, in our society that won't even speak to each other. They don't even seek to understand or take the time to sit down and even bother to disagree, but maybe hear the other side and understand that perspective. And so that's what we're trying to change. And I think the reason, at least in part, why they don't do that is because you don't get rewarded politically for doing that. And, and, and what don't. seems to get rewarded, uh, you know, Yuval Levin uh, has a book out about a couple about a year or so old where he talks about platform politicians. You want to yeah. get on TV, uh, you want to build your name, you want to get the followers, that is done by making your elected position a platform as opposed to doing the work as a legislator. Both of you get on TV a bunch. Both of you are out there, yet uh, you're, 
you're committed to civility. Congressman Grow, how do you do that? Why, why do the cameras focus on you if you are not about the negative politics, uh, as your caucus would suggest, and if uh, you know, you're, you're truly committed to the civility? Well, because I just say things. I mean, I, I, I just come out and say, I just come out and like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty blunt person. And, and I, if I'm thinking something, I say it. And, I, and, you know, which actually seems really simple. And it's like, uh, uh, you know, why is this radical? That why the lights pretty, keep on going it's a pretty out. radical thing, right? Like, like, like turning oh, off the lights. And I'm going to say it. And people, uh, I mean, listen, I, I represent a purple district, right? I have almost as many Republicans as I do Democrats, you know, like, you know, 30% Republican, about 30% Democrat, about 40% unaffiliated. And, and the unaffiliated, you know, kind of swing both ways. Uh, and, and I always say, you know, um, at any given moment, a very large segment of, of my district or my community disagrees with what I'm, I'm saying or doing. But, uh, you know, the promise that I make is that um, they're going to know where I stand. Right, they're going to know where I stand. They're going to know where I, where, where, why I stand. You know, and take the position that I do. That I'm going to be honest and transparent and accessible, and I'll keep an open mind. And sometimes I change my mind, uh, and that's you know that's kind of the, the promise, and, and, I, and I think that's resonated pretty well. Uh, but you know, Mike and I have had a lot of conversations. We grabbed beers and had some pretty tough conversations sometimes. Uh, but you know, we're friends. Uh, we we work through it. Uh, you know, we never go off and I, I'll never, I'll never, you know, a thousand years tell anybody what, what Mike tells me. And I know he won't do the same because at the end of the day, you know, we're not going to rebuild this country in our, in our, um, our civility and our politics caucus to caucus or party to party. It's going to happen person to person. You know, it's going to happen with beer diplomacy, people sitting out, sitting down over a beer and just hashing it out. Uh, and, and that's the process we have to go through. Go ahead, Roger, not to, not to interrupt, but I mean, I think one of the best examples of that in modern history was, you know, Reagan and, and Tip O'Neill, right? I mean, the, 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 the stories are just incredible. I mean, they're screaming at each other on the phone, right? I mean, and, but yet they weren't attacking each other's character or intent or motive. Uh, they, they were disagreeing about how to get from A to B for this country. Uh, right. And, and you mentioned going on television and, and, and how we do that. Uh, and, and we get on there and I can say, look, I, I completely, wholly disagree with Representative Crow on issue A, B or C, but I'm not going to I'm not going to attack him or his person. And that's what that's, I think, the example that we have to lead, uh, lead by uh, as representatives and as leaders in this country. Congressman Waltz. Uh you're using the caucus, the caucus is focusing on, and you referenced this a bit earlier, um, a piece of legislation that is focused on national service, the National Service GI Bill. Uh, to me, it, you kind of hit it a little bit earlier, it was a way to kind of change the culture a bit in this country towards service, particularly after, you know, decades after we no longer have the draft. Uh, what's the prospect for this bill and how will you get your 30 members to actually force uh, the majority or you know leaderships not really the majority that yeah. uh, be considered in the congress yeah so roger you know there's a lot of talk uh right now about you know debt forgiveness and um you know eliminating people's student loans and free college and free this and free that frankly uh i want to get some service for it that's fine let's incentivize it i think the gi bill has been one of the most successful programs uh, as a reward for people's service. I'm not saying that going and getting shot at in Africa is the same as 
as you know, spending a year or two in a national park or an inner city, but I want that same concept. So this bill would provide in-state tuition or uh, a community college or trade school in the state in which young people serve. But at the end of the day, you know, how do they you know, graduate from high school and go get that kind of societal goodness that, like I said, that leadership, followership, teamwork and doing it with people that don't think or act like them and then go back into society and then go on and get uh, your, your education and with an appreciation of where other Americans are coming from and serving a cause higher than yourself prospects. Uh, look, I mean, moving, moving this as an independent bill is going to be tough. I, I'll look at my Democratic colleagues. I'll look at Jason to, to lead the charge uh, on it when we're in the minority. But the great thing, as you know, Roger, by being on armed services, is it's one of the only pieces that is uh, almost guaranteed to move every year and has moved for the last 60 years. Uh, if you come to Washington thinking you're going to move massive reform bills on your own, you're going to be really disappointed. But if you're willing to chip away uh, and get things done piece by piece, uh, I think you can be really successful. And one of the things the caucus is building on is a national service commission, uh, that a, a bipartisan uh, commission that put a fantastic, there's all kinds of reports in this town. This one actually had very real legislative language that we can insert in various pieces of legislation and move the country. You know, it's a lot like rugby. You get more people on your side of the scrum and, and, and keep nudging the, the country forward. And I think we're going to get bits and pieces of this done so that a couple of years from now, uh, we're a country that's serving its neighbors, its community, and its country again. Great objectives. I mean, one of the things uh, featuring the bill that, that really spoke to me was there was a requirement or certain grant programs to educate students about the U.S. Constitution. Uh, geez, I, I think uh, if there was ever a moment where everybody could agree that we need to have a deep understanding of our Constitution and institutions, it's now. Uh, you mentioned measures, Congressman Waltz and Congressman Crow. I'll ask you to follow up on this. And we have the COVID-19 relief uh, package going through, 1.9 trillion above the trillions already spent. You think we can get something in there on national service? Uh, seems to be it would be a great way uh, to address uh, so much of the pain and suffering uh, that Americans have experienced and, you know, uh, uh, due to COVID and then the political division that accompanied over the past year. What do you think, Congressman Crow? Any opening there and those trillions being spent? I, I, you know, I think the ship has sailed on the most recent COVID relief bill in terms of national service, but you know, I couldn't agree with Mike Moore on the need for it. Right? I think there's a lot of people I think across the, the political spectrum on both the left and the right, who are really wondering, you know, what is the path forward for our country now, right? We just, you know, we seem as divided as we certainly have been in my generation and many generations. Uh, there's a lot of Americans that are uh, sitting back now and questioning, you know, what is, what, you know, what is American identity? What, you know, who are we as a nation? You know, what is America? I guess is, is something that a lot of people are, are actually asking now. And I look back, I, you know, I'm a student of history and I look back on, on history and, um, uh, what I think is very unique about us. One of the, and one of the things that I think is most unique about America is that we have this civic culture. You know, we have this commitment that people uh, sacrifice uh, their own personal interests for the greater good. Uh, and, and, and some of our greatest moments of progress uh, are the story of just that, people sacrificing their own self-interest for the greater good. And that, uh, that's what this national service effort is really about, is reinvigorating that sense of duty and civic responsibility. I mean, Alexis de Tocqueville, wrote about this in Democracy for America. 
when he went around and said, you know, what's truly unique about America is this civic life, these cultural institutions that he doesn't see, he didn't see anywhere else. Uh, and, and yet that's fraying, we're losing some of that. Uh, so we have to make a very concerted effort to reinvigorate it uh, and put a focus on it. And, and you know, that means money, that means resources, that means leadership standing up and saying this is important and our young folks uh, should get together and work together just to, um, to serve the country. Well, I think a four country caucus that has 30 members where there's a very narrow majority, uh, gosh, that probably has a, a great opportunity here to uh, get some legislation for some legisla legislation uh, over the course of, of this Congress, uh, which would go a long way to fixing the country, but also uh, the institution. Uh, before we wrap up and go to our Reagan round, um, we started out this conversation talking a little bit about the Congress and uh, it's, well, I was about to say support, low support uh, and faith by, uh, when, when polled by, when Americans are polled, excuse me. Um, what's the most important thing that the Congress can do to restore uh, the trust and confidence of the American people? Uh, Congressman Crow, like there's one thing, is it spending more time you know, in the Capitol rather than the districts? Is it something about, um, you know, the way the Congress is organized, committees versus leadership. Uh, give me your take. What do you think would go a long way to helping the institution in which you sit now? Well, one I'll say is style and one is substance. Style is people just need to start telling the truth and being honest and stop acting like politicians all the time, right? Because people see that, right? I, I, <laughs> I go back in my district and they know when someone's feeding them a line and when they're not. They know when there's a political soundbite and when they're actually saying something that's true. Uh, and it, it feeds this mistrust and this distrust and this apathy uh, in the system. Uh, so people just need to, to start being more honest. Uh, and then number two, um, and this sounds, um, this might again sound kind of simple, but uh, we need to rebuild America. And I mean that in the literal sense. I believe in the power of work in accomplishment and building trust. We can build trust as a nation by doing big things again. And infrastructure is a great opportunity. There is tremendous tremendous um, uh, bipartisan interest in, in a uh, infrastructure effort to rebuild our roads and bridges, our electro electrical infrastructure, our water, uh, so that we have the, the foundation for prosperity. We did that 60, 70 years ago. After World War II, we made investments that served as the foundation for our current prosperity, but then we stopped, to make, we stopped making those investments. If we did that, we could put tens of millions of people to work. Uh, we could create economic activity, grow jobs, uh, and, and literally rebuild the infrastructure. And I think that, that would rebuild trust. Quick follow up on that, and then I'll go to Congressman Waltz. With trillions of dollars now being spent on COVID relief without discussing the merits of the, the particular measures that have been adopted by the Congress and that will likely be adopted uh, with a $1.9 trillion measure going through now, do you really think there's hope for a infrastructure bill after all that spending? Congressman Crow? Oh, oh, that's for me. Yeah, I do think that. Uh, you know, first of all, we're in a crisis. Uh, you know, we're in a crisis mode, right? And, and people say, uh, you know, most folks will say that when you're in a crisis, the worst thing you can do is underestimate the crisis. There's go my, there go my lights again. Uh, <laughs> under, under respond to the crisis. So I think we learned that in 2008 and 2009, that if you, we shortchange this, then we prolong the recovery. Uh, and it's not much a recovery if, you know, we lose millions of small businesses uh, this year, uh, and we've already lost many. 
uh, if they're actually not around to recovery, to recover, then there's not much of a recovery. So we just need to stop the bleeding right now, uh, address the pandemic, get shots in arms, uh, get, uh, get our schools back open and save our businesses. Uh, and then we'll transition to re uh, rebuilding. But um, you know, it, it, these infrastructure bills pay for themselves. They really do. Uh, almost every analysis shows that, that if you invest uh, in, in building and in building infrastructure, it creates economic activity. That's an investment that I think is, is worthy to make. I come from a small business background. I grew up in a small business family. When I was a lawyer, I, I, I largely helped small and medium-sized businesses. In business, people will tell you, and you know, Mike's a businessman too, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you that if you don't invest in your business, your business will eventually fail. Uh, and so you know, there's a lesson for our country there too, that there are smart investments, and I'm concerned about the deficit too, and the debt, I am, uh, and we have to address that. But that doesn't mean that we stop making the investments that we need for our prosperity. Congressman Walter, I'm sure you want to jump in. I mean, we, Congressman Crow, <laughs> yeah, this is on this the is, deficit and debts, and 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 that's going to really spin. It's not a, I don't know. You know, we, we agree on some of these parts and, and disagree on the others. I mean, I I keep looking at the trillion that we just passed two months ago, that's sitting in uh, that's sitting on spent. You know, Roger, for being Armed Services Committee, and, and Jason does as well, how much the Pentagon struggles to spend $600 billion in a year. And they have a massive contracting and bureaucratic apparatus. Some of these small, uh, some of these small agencies are struggling to get this money out in time. And meanwhile, in my view, China and the CCP are the big winners. Uh, they unleashed this virus on the world. They clearly covered it up. Uh, and their military plans on has built into their campaign planning when the United States will go bankrupt uh, for when they will then reach military supremacy and, and, and make their, their moves around the world to, as Z says, replace the American dream uh, with the China dream. So I think there's real national security implications to the overspending. I do wish it was more targeted. I couldn't agree with Jason more on targeting on people that really need it not government workers or not, you know, uh, companies that have been thriving like Netflix and Amazon targeting on small business and, and focusing on health. But unfortunately, the vast majority of this latest package, in my view, doesn't. I do want to say, Roger, we did get a piece uh, in a previous round that was is uh, national service focused, and that's building out a reserve corps uh, yes. to the public health service. Right. So one of the things that we found in this pandemic, and unfortunately, this won't be the last and I fear one that is far worse in the future, but is pulling together doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, first responders uh, in a way much like the military does. that We can tap into that expertise uh, uh, much more efficiently and quickly in a, in a time of a national health emergency. Yeah. Well, and yeah, actually sorry. one of our bills, Roger, one of yeah. Mike and I, uh, Mike and I's bills, the Triage Act. That we introduced last year actually would provide very small and targeted grants to state regulatory agencies to actually re-onboard uh, retired or recently departed um, uh, healthcare professionals to give surge capacity uh, during time of pandemic. So I mean that's one area where we've been able to. A moment where program. both members practice what they preach. They were clearly divided and debating in a civil way <laughs> uh, the current <laughs> relief measures and spending measures, but they ended off talking about legislation, which they offer together. Before we close out this discussion, uh, we need to do our Reagan lightning round. 
Uh, here's how we're going to play it because we have two guests today. Uh, we ask each of you to share either your favorite Reagan speech, quote, or book. Give me one for each. We'll start uh, with Congressman Crow. Yeah, thanks, Roger. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I have actually really liked over the years Reagan's Memorial Day address at Arlington in 1985. And I'm going to paraphrase here because it's a long address. But um, he basically said, you know, we, we um, look at veterans, we look at our, dis our fallen men and women um, uh, uh, who died uh, for our country. We look at them as kind of these, these old wise folks, you know, men and women, uh, and we kind of whitewash it in our mind. But we often don't remember that, that they, were, they were boys. Uh, when they died, that these are, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old young men uh, who gave their lives. So they were cheated of the life they were living and they were cheated uh, and, and, and deprived of uh, the, the life that they were gonna live. Uh, and I think that's an important uh, and really poignant um, statement by President Reagan. Uh, and it's one that I, you know, shows me that you can take seriously um, the, um, you know, the charge of sending our young men and women into battle when, when we need to do it. Uh, and, and understanding the true costs of doing that. Uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, that, yeah. That's a great one. One we haven't heard before on the show, but uh, it does, we started out talking about the 75th anniversary of Normandy. And of course, President Reagan on the uh, 40th anniversary spoke about the boys, a point to us, so that, that language repeated itself in 1985 in the speech that you cite. Congressman Waltz, uh, what do you like want to share? You know, it's a toss up. I'm sure you've heard it before, but a time for choosing just, a, just the classic uh, and it would be a toss up between that and then his speech to actually to Moscow University, where he just skewered uh, uh, communism and, and socialism you know, in the heart of it to a new generation of Russians, but did it with with such a velvet glove. Uh, it was it, I think it was just one of the greatest speeches of all time. But man, time for choosing is just just tough to beat. You know, I'll. I'll uh, I'll, I'll die on my feet rather than surrender on my knees. Uh, and, and in a time, you know, in the 1960s after the Cuban Missile Crisis and um, when the Soviet Union really looked like it was on the, on the march, he really took a stand. But favorite book though, uh, Reagan's Road to Conservatism. You know, people forget he was a Democrat and, and touring the country, speaking, um, um, you know, for, in the private sector and how he became a conservative and, and saw that limited government, local government uh, and, and power in the hands, money in the hands of the people is the, the best way forward for this country. Uh, and I, I just found it fascinating that conversion uh, over time. Congressman Walls, Congressman Crow, uh, it's been a lot of fun. We thank you for being on the show. We want you back and we're gonna debate next time. We're gonna All right, how you deal. debate <laughs> in a civil way. All right, take care, thank you. Thanks, Roger. All right. Take care. See you, Roger.